Today we're going to begin a study through the letter of 1 John. And so, as we have done with other books that we've looked at together, we want to ask some questions like, what is the book about? And how is it the same or different from other books? And why it was written? And so, uh, let's, let's answer some of these before we look at uh, the beginning of the main theme of the book, which is to know the joy of eternal life. So who's the author? John wrote this book. He's one of the twelve apostles, the one close to Jesus whom Jesus loved. There are discussions about when it was written. Uh, a handful, uh, maybe more than a handful of liberal scholars would say it was written sometime in the second century due to its warnings against certain false teachers, which they would say those sorts of ideas didn't come until like AD 150, 180, somewhere in there. So the gospel uh, or the letter of 1 John couldn't have been written until then. Most uh, people have taken it to be written in the late 1st century. So probably AD 85 to 95, somewhere in there, is a more accurate understanding. It would have been written uh, toward the end of John's life. Uh, why did he write? Why did he write? 1 John 1, 3 through 4. We proclaim to you these things also, that you too may have fellowship with us. And in turn, if fellowship with John and the rest of the believers, if they had fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and other people had fellowship with them, then by extension, those who have fellowship with God's people also have fellowship with God himself. And then verse 4, so that our joy may be made complete. And then also chapter 5, verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so these purposes might seem to be two or three different things, but they are all connected. John writes his letter to churches, potentially the same ones he addresses in his letter of Revelation, so that they would know that they had eternal life so that they would continue walking with God and having fellowship with Him, resulting in joy for John and others who had seen God's work down throughout the decades. There are a number of key terms throughout the letter of 1 John. Uh, if we were to look first at people who are referenced in uh, 1 John, we see God the Father referenced uh, 15 times. We see Jesus referenced 12 times. In connection with Jesus, we see the idea of propitiation referenced twice. As far as uh, human people in this uh, book, we see the word brother 12 times, little children 7, you 65 times, we 88 times, and he 18 times. There are two major groupings of ideas that John is trying to get across. One we could put under the heading of things which are evil and the other things which are good. So, for example, he references the idea of sin almost 30 times throughout this letter. Uh, only five chapters. There's the idea of darkness, the idea of hate, the idea of the world is almost referenced as frequently as sin, the idea of lying 13 times, and the idea of the Antichrist four times. Under the heading or the category of things which are good, we see the idea of fellowship four times. We see love 52 times. Light, six. No, 40. Commandment, seven times. Keep, usually in connection with commandment, seven times. 
and then truth nine times. So we have these contrasts between sin and love. We have these contrasts between light and darkness, between knowing and hating, between the world and God's commandments that are to be kept, between the lie and the truth, and between the Antichrist and between Christ himself. And so there is a series of contrasts in 1 John. There are a series of of the relationship between God and and his people, uh, the devil and his people. And um, John writes this letter in a kind of cyclical way. And so if you've ever tried to outline the letter of 1 John, it's kind of a struggle to do that because he keeps coming back to ideas and he overlaps ideas and he keeps repeating ideas. He starts, though, and there's a clear beginning and ending to the book. He starts with Jesus, the word of life who has come, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and ends with Jesus, who is the Son of God, who has come, chapter 5, verse 20. We know the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. In between... Those two, those two verses, those uh, two sets of verses, John circles back and forth between three main ideas that help us evaluate whether we have eternal life. The first test of whether we have eternal life is our relationship to sin. Do we tolerate sin or do we confess sin? Do we try to avoid sin or do we love sin? Do we love the world or do we reject the world? So, look first, if you would, and we're going to be just turning back and forth in the book. So, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And then continuing into chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. And then if we jump down to uh, chapter 2, verse 9, The one who says he is in the, darkness and yet, in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And then verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so here, darkness is a synonym for sin. Then we come to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, verses that many of us probably memorized at some point throughout our lives. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but one who does the will of God lives forever. And then at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Then we come to... Chapter 3 and verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. 
Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is, a, he is born of God. And then if we jump down to chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. All, or verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And so, do we, how do we respond to sin? That is the first test of whether or not we have uh, eternal life, a relationship with God, fellowship, all of these various ways that God, John describes eternal life or salvation. The second test, going back to the beginning of the book, is our relationship to God. Our relationship to God in 1 John is shown primarily in our relationship with the people around us. Do we love God by obeying Him? Specifically, do we obey God by loving our brother? Or do we hate our brother and show ourselves to be children of the devil who is a murderer? We see this primarily, I suppose we could say, if we have fellowship, then that is show our relationship with people around us. So perhaps it's seen in uh, verse 3. But if we jump down to chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And then verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If we jump then to chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then, uh, chapter 3, verse 23. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him, verse 24, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Chapter 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then chapter 4, verse 19, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Chapter 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So the first test is our relationship to sin. The second test is our relationship to God, which is shown primarily in keeping His commandments by loving our brother. The third test is our relationship to truth. So turn back to the beginning of the book one more time. Do we believe the lies of the Antichrist empowered by Satan, or do we hold on to the key truths about Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, who came in the flesh? So chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and it is now already in the world. Verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then chapter 4, verse uh, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Chapter 5, I'm sorry, 
I jumped into the wrong category. Um, let me come back. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The third test of salvation, according to what John has written in his letter, is our relationship to the truth. John writes a lot in this letter about knowing God and these three tests. And by the end of our study of 1 John, my prayer for you is the same as John's, that you may know that you have eternal life, which is the greatest joy of all, because you have fellowship with the God who made you for himself. How do we know if these things are true? If we hate sin and this world, if we love God and our brother, if we believe what has been revealed about Jesus Christ, these are three tests that get to the same idea, which is that, do you have a relationship with God or not? If you do, then you will have a particular relationship with um, the with God himself, with God in the relationship to truth, and in a response to sin that we confess it and deal with it. And that is the overview of 1 John. What I want us to focus on now briefly this morning as we uh, conclude is these first four verses, John's introduction to his letter. He starts out, he says, what was from the beginning? Uh, In his gospel... John described this idea of what was from the beginning. And in John 1, he writes this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What was from the beginning? Jesus is God. He has existed as long as God has existed, which is for all of eternity. He will exist as long as God exists, which is for all of eternity. And so when John says in 1 John, what was from the beginning? I think he's referencing back to what he's already said in his gospel, that Jesus is God, has been with God from the beginning, and will be with God for all of eternity. But there is a a coming from God to earth in which he says, what we have heard and seen. What we have heard? 
There was the proclamation by John the Baptist of the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Well, and all of the words of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus beforehand. But then they also had seen the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. What we have looked at, and not just seen with our eyes, but we have looked at, they spent three, three and a half years with him and touched with our hands. Think about the story of Thomas. He says, if I don't see him, and if I don't put my hand in the wounds on his side, I won't believe him. But John says, we have heard that he was coming. We have seen him. We have walked with him. We have even touched him. We know that he is real. The word of life has been made flesh. Verse 2, the life was manifested. Jesus is the life of God. Jesus is the one who brings eternal life because he is life. Made flesh, visible, tangible for the apostles to encounter and to behold. They, in turn, do what verse 2 says, which is, we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. We've seen it. We've seen him, rather. And so we turn from him, having beheld him and seen him, all of who he is that he revealed to us, we turn and we testify to you. We are giving witness as in a courtroom. Here is what Jesus is like. How do we know what God is like? How do we know the life that came from God through Jesus? We testify about that to you. We proclaim him to you. Not just here are facts, but here is a message to be believed. Which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus has come from the Father, made manifest to us, So you and I might say, well, we don't see Jesus face to face. How do we know? The apostles beheld him. Many others beheld him. They testified to us. They proclaimed to us. And now, John would say, there is the choice that lies that he describes later in the book, which is, do you believe in the one who has been testified about and proclaimed to you? What we, verse 3, have seen and heard We proclaim to you also. The apostles were, although at first fearful, they all ran away, hiding. They were all gathered in the upper room waiting. God's Spirit comes upon them in a mighty way, like He did upon the kings and prophets of old, to empower them to go out and declare Jesus, Acts 1.8 says, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that message about Jesus starts in a very localized region and spreads throughout the entire world. And the ripple effect has led to the fact that you and I are sitting here today because they heard and saw and touched and then they testified and proclaimed and then they recorded and now that's been passed down to us. For what purpose? To what end? That you may have fellowship with us. There is a sense, and not in a strange, mystical, superstitious kind of way, not in a uh, necromancy communicating with or attempting to raise the dead like the witch at Endor did when Saul came to her, Uh, not in that kind of way. Jesus said it this way, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. So how can it be said that we have fellowship with those who proclaim Jesus who have been gone for 2,000 years? 
The answer is because God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. They are not dead, they are alive. And so Hebrews describes this fellowship that we have, which is that there is a connection between us and every other person who has believed in God the Father through the work of God the Son and God the Spirit. There is a connection between us and them that is an actual real thing, invisible though it may be, so that there is this unseen crowd in the grandstands watching us run the race of faith, and they see us. We don't see them, but they see us, and we are connected with them, and eventually we'll be joined with them. And John is, I think, obviously writing primarily to people that he could have fellowship with in a more tangible, visible way, because he was yet alive and they were yet alive. But my point is that connection goes even beyond between John and the people he's writing to, to John and us, John and people who have believed in Jesus down through the centuries, us and people who have believed in Jesus down through the centuries. And even more importantly than that, as important as it is for us to have fellowship with God's people through the message that has been proclaimed, through us believing the message that has been proclaimed, that there would be fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And the reason that that's so important is what Paul describes in Ephesians, which is, if you don't have fellowship with God, you can't have fellowship with people. What was the thing in Ephesians 2 that joined Jews and Gentiles together? It was their mutual connection with God created a connection between them and the people around them who had also believed in Jesus. And as they drew closer to God, they also drew closer to those who are part of God's people. And so John says, we proclaim it that you can have fellowship with us, but even beyond that, we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and you too can have fellowship with us and with them. And then he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Uh, John, at the time that he writes this, if he's writing it in um, the late first century, let's say it's AD 90, let's say Jesus calls him around AD 27, 28, Let's say that he's really young. Let's say that he's 18. He's about 80 when he writes this. And if Jesus called him when he was already in his 20s, he's almost 90 when he writes this. So he is looking at this from the perspective of a father and a grandfather watching the course of the life of his children and saying, if you continue believing the truth that I have passed down to you and living in the way that I've modeled for you and more importantly, the way that God wants you to live, the way that God has called you to, that brings me great joy. Paul says it this way. He says to the Thessalonians, I poured my life out to you as a mother nurturing for her baby, as a father cheering on his sons. My fear is that the tempter would have come and tempted you and your faith would have been in vain. John, I think, although writing somewhat more optimistically, says, I want you to get these truths and know these truths and have them deep in your heart because I want you to continue in faith and that will bring me great joy. And so we could look at that and say, well, that's kind of a selfish thing, John. 
you want this for you. And the reality is, although it benefits John and blesses John, it's not ultimately for John. It, because if they are walking in the truth, that honors God, and the after effect of that is John's joy being increased. And so, in the end, it's not selfish at all, because that which honors God is that which his people should desire most, right? So, John is saying, if I write this to you, if we write these things to you, and you believe these things, and you walk with God, God is honored and we can rejoice that God's work is accomplished. So Jesus has existed from eternity. What was from the beginning? We heard about him in the pages of Scripture. John heard about him in the pages of Scripture. Then John and the others who saw Jesus during his ministry beheld him face to face, gazed at him, touched him, he was tangibly, physically, actually there. Jesus brings eternal life to all who believe in him in order to have a relationship with God the Father, which then creates fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all of God's people, of whom we are a part if we believe the message that John and the others had proclaimed. And John writes these things to Find the joy of seeing God's people walk with God, not be taken away from God by sin, not be taken away from God by going back to the old way of living in which we say, I can hate my brother and that's totally fine. Not by being led astray by falsehood that would, uh, again, lead us away from the purity and simplicity of the gospel of Christ. John writes these things so that he can have the joy of seeing God's people walking with God, confident that they know God, not a confidence that comes from themselves, but a confidence that comes from seeing the evidence of God's work in their lives. One of the big questions uh, with 1 John is the question of assurance of eternal life. That's what, the way a lot of people have thought about this book. And sometimes they will talk about subjective assurance and objective assurance. And while I understand why they're talking about those things, I'm not sure it's always helpful to draw a line between those. Because the reality is that the facts remain true however we feel about them. Right? So, for example, I can say, I began to follow God at this date and time. Maybe you don't know the date and time. And that's fine, because John doesn't say, did you believe a long time ago? He's saying, what do you believe right now? But there is a starting point, whether we know exactly when it is or not. If our confidence is, subjectively, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I had a feeling, we're going to struggle in our Christian lives. Because... It's really easy to do things and then regret them or, or go back on them later on. It's really easy to feel certain ways and then not feel them later. Am I saying it's sinful that someone walked an aisle or heard the gospel at an evangelistic crusade or had this profound religious feeling? No. But it's easy for us to mistake a moment or an experience for a relationship with God. 
There was a guy that I was uh, reading something about the other day. He said, man, I thought that I really loved being in church and singing Christian music. And then I just went to a bunch of concerts and I realized, you know what? I like music and I like concerts. And so it really had nothing to do with God. It was all about the feeling that the experience of, of the music produced in me. Which goes back to the question of objective assurance. And again, maybe not the most helpful terms. Our walk with God is not something that we have to rely on feeling a particular way or having a particular memory or having something written down. Uh, I get requests sporadically for a baptismal certificate from the church. And I'm kind of like, if the person doesn't know if they're baptized and if you can't trust their word that they were, me giving you a piece of paper is not really the issue. And so along the same lines, if you say, how do I know that I'm a Christian? You pull out this Bible that you had 20 years ago, and you're like, look, I wrote this thing down in this Bible. And the person's like, yeah, but look at the way you're living. Are you sure? And you're like, yep, it's written down. Got to be true. John doesn't give us in this letter tests that are all like iffy or feelings or I'm not saying feelings are evil. God gave us emotions. But I'm just saying they fluctuate, right? Memories fail. Emotions fluctuate. What we need to know is objectively before God, do I belong with you? And that's why he gives us these three tests. How do you respond to sin? Do you try to cover it up? Or do you confess it and forsake it? What's your relationship with the world that hates God and is going its own way? Are you caught up in everything that it values? Or do you say, no, that's not for me? What about your relationship with the people around you? Do people around you know you as someone who is giving and loving and concerned about people? Or do they just know you as somebody who could care less about what's going on with people around you? If we're living in an exclusively selfish way, we should have serious questions about whether we know God. And then about truth. This is the one we tend to pick on, right? Truth. What do you believe about Jesus? If you can phrase it in the right way, then yes, I will concede that you are a Christian. But John didn't just give us that one test. Because it's entirely possible to be able to say things that are true about God and be damned for all of eternity. Why do I say that? Because James says in his letter, the devils, the demons know that there is one God and they're afraid of the one God and they have no intention of following the one God. So, just being able to say truths using the right words is not enough. Just being able to say, well, but I'm really kind to everybody and I say the right words is not enough. For us to have confidence of our salvation in God, full assurance that we belong with Him, there has to be a certain attitude and response to sin. There has to be a certain attitude and response to the people around us. And there has to be a certain attitude and response to truth. If you've got one for three, two for three, but not three for three, there is going to be a lack of confidence and assurance that can either point to severe immaturity that needs to be dealt with, like we see in the letters to the Corinthians, or a lack of a relationship with God and a false hope based on, like I said, an action, a feeling, something written down that has no correspondence to what's going on in your life today. 
And so John is really concerned that we would have tools by which to evaluate ourselves. And along those same lines, I would say for the church to evaluate us as well. So again, when it comes to assessing where we are all at spiritually, 